Well, please turn in, in your Bible to Revelation chapter 3 as we turn to one of the most encouraging portions in this section of the Word of God, the letter to the church in Philadelphia, of course, not Philadelphia in Pennsylvania, but that ancient town of Philadelphia in Asia Minor. And follow as I read. I'll read from my New American Standard, starting in verse 7, Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you because you have kept the word of my perseverance. I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven and uh, from my God, and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Please join me in prayer as we ask for the Lord's blessing upon his holy word. Our Father, when we read of the grace that you promise to give to your people, it gives us a sense of our need of that grace. And we desire our God that you would come by your Holy Spirit, who has all of the mysteries, who has all of the truth, and is able to apply it to us. We ask that you would be with us as we often pray. Be amongst us, work in us, stir up our souls, give us a hunger and thirst after righteousness for the glory of your great and holy name. So please do good to us, your people, your believing people as we come through Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Sometimes what God does in the ministry of his word is to involve matching themes. It, what, what God sometimes does is he takes uh, one service, one uh, ministry of the word, and he adds to it another ministry of the word, and you see how together they dovetail and present a united truth and this is a very blessed thing and we are uh, we, we're always bound to give attention to the Word of God 
of course, but it is striking when the Lord does this. And this evening, we see in the Word of God, one of the things that we considered this morning in the meditation hour, the covenant of David, and here again, we find it in this very text that we have read, the covenant that God made with David about his son, who would be the ruler of his kingdom forever. And there it is in our text. I'll, I'll point it out. If you're still a little mystified about that, you will we'll look at it this evening. So we're studying this letter of our Lord. The Lord originated it. He spoke it to John. John wrote it for the churches. And we will follow a similar pattern that we have followed in previous sermons. I basically have five points of unequal length. First, the city Philadelphia. Secondly, Christ's self-description. Three, multiple blessings for his faithful people. Number four, Christ's call to steadfastness and then his call to attention. Those are the five things we're going to be looking at this evening. And so first of all, let's say a couple of things about the city Philadelphia so that you have a sense of uh, what kind of a place this was and, uh, and where the people of God who are addressed here live. The city uh, got its name not because the people who lived there all loved each other. It was not the city of brotherly love in that sense. It got its name from a man by the uh, a man called uh, Attalus the Second. You'll know almost nothing about him. I know I knew almost nothing about him until I read my commentaries. This man was very loyal to his brother. He had a brother by the name of Eumenes, and uh, he loved him so much. He was so faithful to him that he got the nickname Brother Lover, and that. That's where that name Philadelphia came from. The name was given to the city because of its association with this man. Now, the city itself was located 28 miles southeast of Sardis. Sardis was the previous city in the route that we looked at last week. And if you went uh, 27 miles southeast of Sardis, you had the city of Philadelphia. Uh, it was a... It was a City, both uh, Sardis and Philadelphia were dominated geographically by Mount Tumulus, and the region was troubled by a lot of earthquakes. Maybe it was kind of like San Francisco. Uh, they, one man called it the city of earthquakes. That's how much they had many earthquakes. In 70 AD, its nearby neighbor Sardis and it were destroyed. They were, well, they were wracked with a large earthquake. It damaged Sardis and it destroyed Philadelphia. Philadelphia was rebuilt with imperial funds. So at the time this letter is written, it is an existing city that was enjoying something of a renaissance. The region was also fertile and prosperous and the city was subject to many of the temptations common in Asia Minor. Now, here's the thing that I hope you'll take notice of. Although the city was like many other cities in Asia Minor, where there was a lot of idolatry and a lot of temptation, yet this church was uniquely faithful and commended 
by the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, this church was only one, uh, one of only two churches that received no rebuke from Christ. The other one was Smyrna. A month ago, we looked at Smyrna, and Smyrna, again, was a faithful church that was not rebuked, but only commended by the Lord Jesus, and that's the case here in at the church in Philadelphia. The church was very faithful, highly commended by the Lord Jesus Christ, as you see. So that is the city, Philadelphia. Secondly, let's look together at the Christ's self description as Christ writes each letter to his church he tells them something of who he is he is revealing himself graciously so that the churches have some sense of who he is what his character is as he writes to them and in Christ's self-description there are three parts to it there are three things that the Lord says he wants the church to know about him and you look in your text and you see that in the middle of verse 7 he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, and who shuts and no one opens. This is the self-description, the self-revelation of the Lord Jesus to this faithful church. He is holy. And this is, a, this is interesting as I thought about that. I said, I don't remember in chapter 1 where he says this. Most of the self-descriptions of Christ come from chapter 1 when he says he's the one who has feet like, like burnished bronze. That's from chapter 1. The sword coming out of his mouth. That's from chapter 1. And uh, the one who has the key of David. That's from chapter 1. But the word holy does not appear until chapter 5, 4 or 5, if I remember correctly. It's one of those verses, but it's not found in 2 and 3. And what it means, of course, is that he is separate from everything that defiles. The Lord Jesus Christ is perfectly holy. He is morally pure. And he brings this forward. The reason why he announces this about himself is because the church has achieved holy living also. They are a, a holy church. There's no stain. There's no moral blemish on this church. That's why there's only commendation. There's only promise for this church because they are like the Lord Jesus. Their life matches the aim of Jesus for his church. If you remember in Ephesians chapter 5, Christ describes his church this way. In fact, let me urge you to turn for a moment to Ephesians 5 and read with me verses 25 through 27. What does Jesus want his church to be like? Notice what he says. Paul the Apostle writing, comparing the life of Christ and his church to husbands and wives. He says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And to what purpose? so that he might sanctify her. That word sanctify, make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. That is the aim of Jesus Christ for his church. That's what he wants. He wants a holy, 
spotless church. And thus far, in their life together, their life was matched by this aim of the Lord for his church. They are a holy church. And so Christ identifies himself as the holy one. Secondly, he is the true one. The one who is holy, the one who is true. In other words, he is faithful. He is all that he claims to be the opposite of anything that is false. False. And this, this is what these Christians are like. They are like the Lord Jesus Christ in this respect. It is a great compliment of the Lord Jesus that you are like me. That's the aim of Christ for his people, that we should be conformed to his image. That's God's aim in saving us, that we should be like Christ. And these, these are a kind of a commendation of the church. He is holy and he is true. And these people, that is their character as well. The third thing that he says in this self-description is that he has the key of David. He has the key of David. And you know what keys are for. Uh, it doesn't take a, a great theologian to understand. Keys are for locking and unlocking. They open doors and they lock doors. You have a key to your home. Uh, what do you do? You're going to go home this evening and you're going to put the key in the lock and you're going to turn the key and open the door. And if somebody locks the door, nobody's getting in. Someone unlocks the door, then you can enter in. This is what Jesus says. He says, I have the key of David. I open doors and I lock doors. And when the Lord Jesus Christ opens the door, then you may go in and you may be sure that his purposes are going to be accomplished. And when he locks the door, you may be sure that no one is going through. Now, these words about the Lord Jesus, this self-description, this part of it, is actually from uh, Isaiah 22. And I would, again, encourage you to turn back to Isaiah chapter 22. And you'll see where this comes from. This comes from a prophecy about one of the leaders of Israel in, and in, the, in the lifetime of Isaiah. And you can see how well this fits with what the Lord Jesus says to his church there. I start reading Isaiah 22, 20. Then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him. I will entrust him with your authority and he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. Now here is a man. He's of the Davidic lineage. And the Lord says to this man, I'm going to put my key, the key of David, on this man's shoulder so that the prosperity of Jerusalem will rest with this man's ministry. And notice again what he says. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. I will drive him like a peg in a firm place and he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. So that's where this language in Revelation 3 comes from. It comes from that Isaiah 22 passage. And if it was true of Hilkiah, and it was a great blessing to the people of God, then so much the more 
this description, the self-description of Jesus is for the people of God a great encouragement and it is a great glory. Jesus is the son of David who has all authority to rule his kingdom. It's what he said when he went up on the mountain and he said, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. He has the key. He can open doors of service for his servants and he does this actually when this letter is written. It's an interesting, maybe not, maybe not to some of you, it's a little interesting little grammar here. It says um, in the text, I'm trying to find this spot here. Yes, in that, in verse seven, um, no, verse eight, I'm sorry. I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door. In other words, the door has already been unlocked. That's the picture. It's not that he's going to unlock the door and open the door for them, but he's saying that the door has already been unlocked and the door stands open for the people of God. So this is what he has done when this letter is written. And this is to be a great encouragement to the church at Philadelphia. So much then, this is Christ's self-description. The third thing we look at is multiple blessings for his faithful servants. There are multiple blessings for his faithful servants. They are, again, a people who have been faithful to the Lord, and the Lord is faithful to them to bless them. There are multiple blessings. First of all, there's the opportunity that Christ provides. I've already made reference to it. Uh, verse 8. In verse 8, the Lord Jesus Christ says, as he says to all of the churches, I know your deeds. So he knows them thoroughly. He knows all about them. He knows all about the things that they do and the things that they don't do. And this is the reason why they receive multiple blessings from the Lord Jesus. He says to them, I have put before you an open door. It's already open, which no one can shut. It stands open. And the Lord Jesus Christ is going to keep it open. That's the point. Why? Because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Here is a statement that begins with the word behold. And that what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, look, I want you to pay careful attention to what I tell you about what I'm doing on your behalf and on behalf of the gospel. The Lord has promised an opportunity that will remain open to serve him and advance his kingdom. That's the idea of an open door in the New Testament. It appears many times in the New Testament where the Lord describes or one of his servants describes an open door. And this is an opportunity which no one can prevent. It's an opportunity which no one can interfere with. Now, we don't know exactly what this opportunity is. It is an opportunity to serve the Lord. No doubt it is an opportunity to see the gospel advance in Philadelphia. And the Lord Jesus Christ tells them that 
they will succeed without any hindrance. He's telling them, I set before you an open door, which no one can shut. So you're going to have an opportunity to minister in my name to the people of Philadelphia, and no one's going to be able to stop you, to prevent it. And you know what's happened in our New Testament as Paul has gone about preaching the gospel? How many times he would come to a city and there would be some reception, but then there would be opposition and uh, it would almost halt the gospel. Paul describes his work in Ephesus to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, that a wide open door of effectual service has been opened, but there are many adversaries. You see, that was Paul's experience in Ephesus. But this is a great opportunity indeed. The Lord tells them, there's an open door for you. No one's going to shut it. You go ahead and you do the work and the work will succeed. Now the Lord also tells them what the opportunity is and or that the opportunity is there. And he tells them why he provides it. Very interesting. Why does the Lord provide this opportunity to this favored church? It's well worth us bending our minds to think about this because this is what we would like. We would like the Lord to favor us with open doors of, uh, of opportunity without hindrance. And think about the work in Zimbabwe now. And if I'm hearing right, there are hindrances now. There may be hindrances in the future. It's a special favor from God when he gives open doors without hindrances. That seems to be what he's saying here. And why does he do this? Well, he has three reasons. The Lord gives three reasons why he gives this opportunity to the church in Philadelphia. The first one seems like a very unlikely reason to give an opportunity. The Lord Jesus says, I've done this because you have a little power. Very strange thing to say, isn't it? It'd be interesting. You might think that the Lord Jesus would say, I've opened this door for you because you have a lot of power. You know, you have a lot of resources and you'll be able to accomplish a lot. But this is God's way. This is the Lord's way. Why was it that when uh, he sent that judge in Israel with the uh, hundreds of men. And he says, you have too many people here. You need to send fewer people. It was in order that the grace and power of God might be manifested and the people might understand we don't succeed because we have enough men. We, have, we succeed because the power and might of God is with us. And perhaps that's the message here in Philadelphia. You have a little power. So when you accomplish, who's going to get the credit? People are not going to say, oh boy, they sent a lot of people out in the streets. They sent a lot of people to evangelize. And since they have so many people, of course they succeed. There was a, there was a company who would call churches and he would tell them, what you need to do is call a lot of people. And if you call a lot of people, you'll fill your church. The number of calls equals the number of people in your church. Well, that was a strange promise and not according to God's wisdom. Here God says, 
I'm sending you through this open door because you have a little power. And my glory and my power will be magnified and the weakness of your power. So he tells them that, but that's not the only reason why the Lord has turned the key of opportunity in the door at Philadelphia. The Lord also tells them that he has kept their door of opportunity because of their character and their faithfulness. Notice what he says. I have set before you an open door, which no one can shut because you have little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, this place, just like the other places in Asia Minor, had persecution. They had opponents, it's true, but the Lord does this for them and he keeps the door open because they are faithful in the face of opposition. They have kept his word, they are obedient to the word of God, and they are faithful in the midst of opportunity. They have not denied his name, though there would have been temptations, just like the other cities of Asia Minor, to waffle when they are called to testify to who they are. They have not. They have been a faithful church, and therefore the Lord says, now this is what the Lord Jesus says, he says, I'm doing this for you because you have obeyed my word and you have not denied my name. You have been faithful to me. You have a little power. You've kept my word. You have not denied my name. That's the reason Jesus assigns for this. And although they were not outwardly great, they were faithful in opposition. And the Lord Jesus says, I'm paying attention. I know your works. And because of your character, I'm going to give you this open door of opportunity and no one's going to stop you. Surely, this, these words of the Lord Jesus, as they are read to the church in Philadelphia, would spur them on to more service, blessed with success. So that is the first of the multiple blessings for his faithful servants in Revelation 3.8. But then the second blessing, the Lord gives them multiple blessings, the second blessing is that their enemies would be humbled. Their enemies are being humbled. And again, we have it, we have verse 9 begins with the word behold. First behold, verse 7, I'm sorry, um, verse 8. Second behold in verse 9. It's a little bit unusual. The first behold is a blessing that the Lord Jesus Christ has already given. He has opened the door and he's keeping it open for them. The second blessing is a blessing he's about to give. So when you read this, uh, you, you might think, well, maybe the first blessing announced in verse 8 is the blessing of verse 9, but it is not. Because the blessing of verse 8 is one that has already begun. He's already opened the door. Now it's a blessing which he is going to add to this. He's going to do something more. He's going to humble their enemies. And he gives this blessing, this second blessing, for the same reason. Slightly different words, but the same thing. Notice what he says. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. I will make them come 
and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. So the Lord Jesus Christ, because of their faithfulness, is giving them this second blessing. He is humbling their enemies. The church is faithful. There is a group in Philadelphia who claim to be God's true people. This is one of the pro one of the problems that would occur in early Christianity in the first century, as churches were established. There would be another corporation, another congregation of people who would say, hey, look, we are God's people. And that would have been the Jews. Many times they opposed the gospel. They became jealous of success. And they would say, well, we're the people of God. These people are Johnny-come-latelys in the religious scene. And they would try to make that accusation against them before the Roman authorities but Jesus here does something a bit unusual. He works not only in blessing the people of God, but in opening the eyes of their enemies to see God's blessing. So this is what Jesus says. His blessing on his serving church will not go unnoticed, or unblessed. The people who are in the, that synagogue of Satan are making their claims, but the Lord's blessing upon his church is noticed. And this, dear brethren, is the work of God's Holy Spirit. Sometimes we think of the Holy Spirit's work in very limited ways. But God's Holy Spirit's work is complex. And to use the language of Paul in Romans 11, pass tracing out. What God does, he, says, he doesn't necessarily convert these Jews, but he says, I will make them know that I love you. They're going to see God's blessing and they're going to come and confess it before the church at Philadelphia. God is able to work in the lives of his enemies so that they are constrained to acknowledge God's people and God's blessing. Do you know how many times God does this? We could trace it out in our Bible, and I would encourage you as you read your Bible to look for this note. I'll give you a couple of examples. We have Haman and Mordecai. You remember that? Mordecai is a despised Jew who sits at the gate and Hanan passes by and expects Mordecai to rise and respect him. Mordecai doesn't do it. He won't, he won't, as it were, give him the time of day. And Haman is so upset that he plans to kill all the Jews, including Mordecai. In fact, Mordecai is the focal point. And uh, at first, it seems like Haman is succeeding. But then... He sees Mordecai rising in the esteem of the nation. And his people say, if this man is a Jew, then nothing you can do will stop him. They're bearing testimony to the uh, 
approbation of God in Mordecai, and it turns out, as his family says, they're not converted people, but they recognize what God is doing. Likewise, you have this confession in the Gospels, the confession of the, of the Pharisees. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem, just one example, Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on the donkey, and the people are giving praises to Jesus, and the Pharisees make this testimony. They say, see, you are doing nothing at all. You're not accomplishing anything. We, we're trying to stop Jesus. And all the people are believing in him. This is an acknowledgement of God's blessing upon his, his faithful servant, Jesus. We could multiply this in many ways. God often does this for his church. God does this for his people. God humbles the enemies of his people. I don't know if you have experienced this. I have, actually. I have. I've had enemies at my jobs, and at times they speak clearly, expressing their animosity, and I pray about it, and I wait, and suddenly the animosity changes, and the opposition melts away. Why? Well, I don't know what God is doing. I don't know how God works, but I know that sometimes he shuts the mouths of his enemies and he does it without any real effort on our behalf, on our part. But God shuts the mouths of his enemies. He often does this. And this is what he does here. This is the second of multiple blessings he, for his faithful servants. He provides opportunity. He humbles their enemies. And then he provides exclusive Protection, exclusive protection in verse 10. And again, notice how the Lord describes this and he assigns a reason. He says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Here is exclusive protection. You may get a notice of uh, an exclusive offer in the mail. I, I always smile when I get one of these envelopes that says open quickly and you know, we have approved you for X number of dollars against our new car. It's an exclusive offer. They make it sound so grand. But when the Lord Jesus Christ says, I have an exclusive blessing for you, this is a blessing indeed. This is the great faithfulness of the Lord for his faithful people. Again, the reason promised is the faithfulness we have already seen. The Lord says, you have kept the word of my perseverance. I have urged you to be faithful to me, to witness for me, to serve me, and you have done it. You have been faithful in doing this. And so the Lord expresses it again for their encouragement. Because of this faithfulness, the Lord rewards them with an exclusive protection. The Lord says, I'm sending a season of testing. It's going to be widespread. But these believers will be spared and they will be protected. And this is another mark of the Lord's favor and grace. And they will know that the Lord is faithful to his faithful people. Reminds me of the words of David in Psalm 18. I won't turn to there. For time's sake, Psalm 18, 25 to 27, with the kind 
you show yourself kind. With the pure, you show yourself pure. But with the froward, with the perverse, you show yourself astute. So God knows how to deal with his people and mark out their faithfulness and blessing. And he knows how to defeat their enemies. This is the, the, this is the blessing. This is the third of the threefold multiple blessings that God has, the Lord Jesus has for his faithful servants. And now we have the fourth place this evening, Christ's call to steadfastness. So far, everything we have read is really very positive and encouraging for the church in Philadelphia. Now we have in verses 11 and 12, a call to steadfastness. Very interesting, right? I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Here is a call to steadfastness. When we read about the things, the, the multiple blessings, it's very encouraging. It's really wonderful. You might wonder why Christ moves from all of these blessings and then says... In verse 11, I'm coming quickly, hold fast what you have. Why? Why this to a faithful church? Well, I think I think I know the answer. I'll present it to you. I think you'll agree. This is a danger to all blessing. It's a danger when we have nothing but prosperity. It can make even his faithful people careless. When we seem to have nothing but blessing and no obvious trouble, that is when complacency and carelessness can set in. Think of King Hezekiah. His kingdom prospered. When he was sick, God healed him and God uh, gave him longer life. And that's when Hezekiah became careless and fell into sin, which affected the future of his reign. It's a danger. The kindness of our Lord is that even when he blesses us, he gives us seasonable warning. He says, look, I'm blessing you. I'm blessing you abundantly. Look at these blessings that I'm giving you, these three blessings. He says, now, I want you to be careful that these blessings don't make you careless. They don't make, let you think that you don't have anything to be concerned about. He says, but you do have something to be concerned about. You are to hold fast what you have. You see, we are in danger when we are enjoying spiritual prosperity to take it for granted and to become lax and say, look at how well we're doing. It's time to coast. It's a danger to us. 
Jesus says, hold fast what you have. Has the Lord revealed his truth to you? Hold fast to the truth. Has the Lord helped you to be faithful? Hold fast to faithfulness. Hold fast what you have. Because there will be enemies nonetheless, and there will be danger. And one of the great dangers we have is our own sinful hearts. Hold fast what you have, that no one take your crown. This is one of the dangers of all blessing. And the Lord says something very interesting here. And you may wonder about this. The Lord Jesus says, I am coming quickly. I'm coming quickly. Now, some people have interpreted this the wrong way. They say, the, the apostles and the early Christians thought the Lord was coming at any moment. Obviously, that is not our Lord's meaning. He's not saying that you can now sell your assets and quit your jobs and go wait out in the desert because I'm coming quickly. That's not the point. The point is that they are in the last stage of God's redemptive program. And history at this point, is charged with the coming of the Lord. The people of God are to anticipate the coming of the Lord, and they are to live in the light of his coming quickly. We are always to live in the expectation of the coming of the Lord Jesus and live with the fear of him, as it were, with the anticipation of his coming and it ought to mark our lives. I'm going to give you two texts. We won't spend a lot of time with them, but at least I'll have them before you. I turn to James chapter 5. And see how James does this. Again, these apostles were not naive, wild-eyed enthusiasts. They were sober-minded men who understand these principles. James 5, 7. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. In other words, they say, okay, we're going to have a harvest, but it's going to come in God's proper time. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. The coming of the Lord. We are to live in the light of that event. Just as if it were, to be, it were going to be happening tomorrow. John does something similar in 1 John. 1 John There John writes, now little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. In other words, again, John is telling us that we should live with the pressure of the return of Christ upon our present lives. We don't know when he's coming back. I know what a lot of people say. I've heard it for many, many years now. The world has gotten so bad. Surely now is the time 
when the Lord is coming? Well, I don't know. I don't know. But this much I do know. I am to live under the sense that the Lord is coming at his time, and I must live as if it were going to happen today. The church is charged with the coming return of Christ. It's to rest upon our minds and hearts. Well, then we have in this call to steadfastness, I move on, the call to steadfastness, to Christ's promise to overcomers in verse 12. Christ promised to overcomers. This is part of his call to steadfastness. This is to motivate our steadfastness. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the Jerusalem, which comes down of heaven and from my God and my new name. Here's his promise. It is a promise of stability. He's going to be a pillar in the temple. You don't move the pillars in God's temple. There is stability. There is safety. There is identification. He's going to write his name upon his people so that their identification with him is undoubtable. These are great blessings to cherish, to anticipate, and to cherish. And I don't have time to go into them because I want to get to my final point this evening, a call to attention. Just as Christ does in every one of the letters, he brings a call to attention. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So just like all of the other letters, the Lord Jesus says, I want my churches to hear what I'm saying. All the other churches should hear what I'm saying to the church in Philadelphia. And what's the point? What's the point? Here it is. Christ wants all the churches to know what pleases him. We pray this way. We want to please you, Lord. We're seeking to please you. Christ wants all his churches to know what pleases him. What pleases him? Zeal for service to Christ. Obedience to his word. Identifying themselves as Christ's service. These are the things that mark the church at Philadelphia. And the Lord Jesus Christ wants the churches to know, this is what pleases me. Why do I lock, unlock doors for them? Why do I humble their enemies? Why do I do these kinds of things? Why do I issue these promises? Because these people please me. They serve me faithfully with little power, with little hope of success from the human standpoint. They please me, they serve me, and I am pleased with them. And therefore I open doors and keep them open for the church. Jesus wants his church to know this is the way to serve him. He wants the churches to know that he will grant them open doors and keep them open. Christ wants all the churches to know true blessing in obedience. I just have not outgrown that little song written, I think, for children. Obedience is the very best way to show that we believe. You say you believe? But obedience is the acid test of true faith. 
It's the very best way. Christ wants all the, all the churches to know the true blessing of his people in obedience. Christ wants all the churches to know the necessity of steadfastness of the dangers of distracting enemies. Hold fast what you have that no one take your crown. So the Lord Jesus Christ calls all the churches to attention. He calls City View Baptist Church to attention that we may understand how may we please God? How may we obtain from him open doors? And may we know the necessity of steadfastness and the dangers of distracting enemies. Hold fast what you have that no one take your crown. Let's pray. Amen. Our Father and our God, our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your faithful word. And we thank you that you are the kind of Savior who loves your churches and loves your faithful people. We pray that you will help us, our God, to be holy. Help us to be obedient. Help us to be steadfast. Grant, our Lord, that we may not be complacent, that we may not fall asleep under your blessings, but that we may be stirred all the more to serve you faithfully. Help us, our Father. We live in an affluent age. We live in an age of plenty. We pray that you will help us to be steadfast and immovable, abounding in your work. And do set before us, our God, open doors which no one can shut for the glory and honor of your name. So bless your word to us this evening. We ask through Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.